Welcome to the Doctor Patient Forum, a no holds barred patient advocacy podcast discussing why millions of pain patients continue to suffer, but most importantly, who caused the suffering. Join us weekly as we discuss how you can help end the untreated pain crisis. Before we get started on this episode of the Doctor Patient Forum podcast, I would love to just give a quick shout out to our brand new patrons who have joined the Doctor Patient Forum Patreon page since our last podcast episode. A shout out to Sandra, Rhonda, Susan, Courtney, Char, Susan, Natalie, EF, Mindy, Sharice, Megan, Diane, and Darla. We are recording part two of our look back on the Dr. Patient Forum podcast. We are celebrating our one-year anniversary tomorrow, and we wanted to share with you all of our episodes that we have covered. We're thrilled that so many lovely people have decided to come on our podcast to share their story. It was actually really fun going through all of these uh, podcasts again. My husband was making fun of me because I was listening to them on three times speed so I could get through all of them again, but it was It was great. I mean, we've had a lot of amazing guests. Okay, so yesterday we went through up to episode 14. For some reason, I skipped over episode 13, so I just want to play a clip from that. That was part four of our PDMP Narcs Care series. This is the one with Jacob James Rich, and I feel like this is an appropriate one to talk about today with Painkiller uh, Netflix series coming out. It's, it's wild because if you look at the number of prescriptions and what proportion of those prescriptions was distributed by Purdue, it basically tops out at like 4% of all oxycodone prescriptions were from Purdue. And I don't say this to say that Purdue is not guilty of absolutely anything, but the idea that they are responsible for the opioid crisis is insane. It's absolutely yes. false. Yeah. So that was an appropriate clip. And you know, it's interesting. And now that painkiller com- came out, somebody yesterday was tweeting and saying, Purdue is single-handedly responsible for addicting an entire nation. So I tweeted and I'm like, well, how are they responsible for addicting an entire nation if they only had 4% of the right. market. And their response was, well, how did they get 4% of the market? And that's what they do. They keep moving the goalposts. Like you ask them a question yeah. and they respond with something crazy. But Claudia, did you see that? I don't want to get too far off topic here, but did you see that I sent you that blog from 2020 from mm-hmm. Drug Free New Jersey? Mm-hmm. And that was Fed Up Rally's chairperson telling people how to sign on for the Purdue lawsuit. And they were like, do I have to ever have gotten OxyContin? No. Did anyone actually have to die? No. What if the person died from heroin? You can still sign on. So they literally, that's why you've heard people all these years saying, oh, it's still because of Purdue. It's because of Purdue. This was all for litigation, which I find absolutely disgusting. I mean, Claudia, I was just watching the first episode of Painkiller and the woman, when she realized she was sitting in the same chair uh, Sackler was deposed in, she jumps up and shoves it and she's like, get me, I do not want to sit in this chair. Like, what? what is it? it? It's it's a bit much. I'm not right. saying he's an amazing person. Like pharma is shady, but they're all shady and they didn't do anything that other pharmaceutical companies didn't do. But okay, I don't want to get too off here. Mm-hmm. So we started season two with Carl Hart. Now I went back yesterday and renumbered all of our podcasts because I don't even understand season one, season two. So I just went back and numbered them all from one because it didn't make sense. So Carl Hart 
Back then we called it season two, episode one, but it, it's episode 15. And we were speaking about it a little bit yesterday when you called me and you were like, I have something that'll cheer you up. Carl Hart is coming on our podcast. Do you remember how nervous I was? I, I was, yeah, I hurt my, remember that what happened? I got out of the shower that day. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I smashed my eye into the glass shower door, and here I am. I, w- I had to go on all these platforms with this black eye, and I was like, I know. And I was like, I'm so nervous. I'm so nervous. You're like, stop. Now I feel like I need to be nervous. I was just and nervous. I, oh, I, I said, why? What am I being nervous for? I didn't know. But yeah, Carl Hart's a big deal. Yeah, he's a, he's, a, he's a big deal. So I have two quick clips from him. Here's the first one. I want to thank you because you you remind me that real people are suffering real pain as a result of our stupidity and as a result of our uh, morality uh, and our puritanical behavior. And so thank you. Here's the other one. You are vilifying opioids and the people who use opioids because when you vilify drugs, you're really vilifying the people who are associated with that drug that who use Yeah, those were important clips with uh, Carl Hart because he really gets it. He gets it about, you know, they'll always say, we don't hate the pain patients, but you do. You do hate the pain patients. Yes, and it's, this do. is a whole nother round of them coming after us now because we take opioids that work for us. And so they're going to attack us. You know, they always say, and it's true, Sacklers vilified people who so-called abused opioids, right? But they're vilifying pain patients who refuse to say that we have issues with addiction because, you know, we don't. And it's not saying, oh, we're better than them. That's not the point. And I know it can come across that way. But why would I say that I became addicted if I'm not just saying that, though, we get attacked for that? So we're no better than people who get addicted. But the thing is, these medicines, they do work for us. And I feel we feel like we're being vilified through this litigation. And every time there's a new video or a new anything, it's going to be another round of them coming to find us on our website, coming to find us on social media. And they're nasty. They come after us. They're like, yeah, go ahead, take your pills. And, you know, you're just a junkie. Like, all of a sudden, like all the stigma, you know, remove stigma from drug use, which we should. But then that all goes out the window when they're talking about pain patients. Right. They're allowed to say right. it doesn't apply to us. Yeah, Mm-mm. especially the people on TikTok, they'll say, Oh yeah, stop taking those pain pills and see how you feel. Well, it's yeah. no different. It's no different when I stop taking prednisone. Yeah, I don't understand why they say that. It's almost like they think we're lying or I don't know what it is. I really don't, but the stigma on pain patients is so thick and it's getting worse every time a new, you know, a new series comes out or a new book and they never stop making them. I don't, don't understand why they keep doing it other than for this litigation narrative. Mm -hmm. So the next episode, episode 16 was with Jim Elliott. Jim is Danny Elliott's brother. Jim is a lawyer, and uh, we reached out to him on Twitter because he was he's the one who posted about Danny's and Gretchen's death, and so uh, we asked him to come on the podcast, and he did. I hope to have him back again. When Danny learned that the DEA once again shut down another one of his doctors, did he call you? So Danny sent me a text message, and he said, my doctor's just got his license had has just had his license suspended. I can't talk right now. Gretchen's insisting that we try to see if we can find another doctor. I think what happened was when when he was told by Dr. Bokoff's office that they were unable to write any 
prescriptions that, as I understand, they were given a list of about 17 doctors 17. to contact. And what I've heard was Gretchen, who was just an angel in Danny's life, immediately got on the phone and just blew up the phone that afternoon trying to call all 17 doctors, none of whom would agree to see them. And so they gave up. 17 doctors now 17 so you know we listened to that arpo sound bite yesterday about the dea agent saying that they're so proud they never let patients go abandoned and i have um in our full episode with danny i read some of our private messages that danny sent to me uh, explaining why he can't he, he doesn't want to do it again and that was before this last doctor was arrested and so 17 17 and and Gretchen took care Danny for all of those years and I think she couldn't watch him suffer anymore either and one thing that haunts me is Danny in my private messages with him said to me the only reason I will never give up give up is because I would never leave my wife mm-hmm. and that haunts me because they figured out a way to do it together right um, right what was there an opioid task force in the California area? It wasn't. We I don't know, know if about- it was ARPO. ARPO actually, there's their strike force has spread across the country. I I will find out because we'll know from looking at the press release. It, and they were created under the Trump Sessions. administration. Yeah, Jeff, Jeff yeah. Sessions. Yep, Jeff Sessions, and they created it to go after I doctors. Him. I and, hate him. Right, he's I, terrible. Jeff Sessions, I hate you. I hope you're riddled with arthritis <laughs> and you're sitting in a broken rocking chair. And I hope. I'd like to see you get shingles on your penis. You're oh my a disgusting gosh. human being. And you know what? I'm not going to say just, to, yeah, you know you what, Jeff, take, take a bufferin and suck it up because that was his <laughs> advice to us. I remember? remember that. Yeah, I do. And then, so Arpo started in the Appalachian region, then it spread out to Pennsylvania. And I think there's 12 of them now, but they started the New England Prescription Opioid Strike Force about a year ago. Is Have they taken out two doctors so far or just, or just? Well, Kenneth Polite has left, right? And he's leaving, right. So I would leave two if I no, were him. One, one. They, I mean, Dr. Norris, she's, she's committed no crime and her husband called me, but I wonder if there was a strike force that worked on taking out David Beckoff. That's what I'm going to look. Yeah, that's a good question. I'm going to look. We should be able to find out from looking at hit the press release. They usually tell you which which strike force took them out. So that was episode 16. Episode 17 was with Dr. Jeffrey Singer. Dr. Singer is a huge friend to pain patients. He's a surgeon in Arizona. Is it, Claudia? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great, great voice for the pain community. Yeah, he really speaks up for us. He addressed in this episode actual statistics of uh, pain patients and how many, because, you know, the, the, the litigation narrative and Kaladni's narrative is that as prescriptions went up, so did addiction rates to prescription opioids. And he addressed that in this episode. Since 2002, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration has been doing a national survey on drug use and health. And the p- percentage of adults 18 and over addicted prescription pain pills has never varied. It's been always less than 1%. No matter how many opioids have been prescribed, during that time period, the prescription volume has doubled and then come down 60%. It doesn't matter. There's a less than 1% addiction rate to prescription pain pills among persons age 18 and up. Not only that, again, according to this survey, past month's non-medical use of prescription pain relievers by patients 12 and up has been essentially unchanged since they started taking the survey, as well as past year diagnosed with prescription pain reliever use disorder. 
Mm-hmm. So if there's no correlation between the number of prescription pain pills prescribed and there's no increase in the addiction rate, the narrative that everything was just fine until these doctors started hooking our young, healthy teenagers on opioids and turning them into people living on the street shooting drugs is completely wrong. That was a really important quote with Jeffrey Singer because of Carrie Judy and her amazing research. She She's the one who saw the information on how they determine how much money states got from litigation. And it was determined by number of deaths attributed to that opioid, number of people who um, but had OUD. So it's the increase in OUD. Also, the more who were diagnosed with it, the more money they would get. And so I do think that that's why they were putting it all on pain patients, like saying that we all had OUD. But even with that, the percentage of people addicted to prescription opioids didn't go up. So there was no jump in addiction rates. There's never been a jump in addiction rates. It was only death. Were there any states that we know of that for sure received extra money from the lawsuit if they were diagnosing people with OUD? We know that's how they determine it, I believe, in every state. The only thing I don't know is how they got those numbers. I don't know if they took them from electronic health records and actual diagnosis or if they took them from a survey. So I'm not sure how that worked, but I do know it definitely was was part of it. So we sure. have... We have data supporting yeah. the more people that were diagnosed with OUD, yeah. the more those states would receive from this opioid litigation. More yes. OUD diagnoses, more money from opioid lawsuits. And and more, more deaths attributed to that product. And so that's why you still hear people saying, oh, well, you know, OxyContin are still responsible for all the deaths. I just don't know how they got that number of OUD diagnoses, but I do know that was part of it. Yeah, definitely was. So episode 18 was with Mark. This was the freedom model of addiction. And this was a kind of, I like Mark. What's his co-host's name? I feel bad. What was her name? Michelle. Michelle. I like them very much. We did get any of our episodes. This is the one I got the most hate about because mm-hmm. Mark has suffered with addiction and so has Michelle. And he's he challenges the idea that addiction is this broken brain disease. And a lot of people seem to be offended by that. But I'm just going to play a quick quote of what he said about addiction. It is 100% a choice. And that's what the research has shown over and over since 1950. And, and we go over the, the myth of loss of control and the brain disease in Appendix A and B in, in spades in our book. It's hard for people to believe that because the narrative is so drastic and it's so hard for people who don't use heavily, who don't have the preference to stick needles in their arms to understand that somebody would choose. Okay, so we had to learn all about addiction and drug use. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't grow up knowing a lot of people, or at least that told me that they suffered with addiction. So I really didn't know a whole lot about any of it or how it works. And so we really had to learn a lot. I think I've learned the most by listening to Maya. Maya seems to be very balanced where she's she's like, well, I don't think that it's 100% a choice and I don't think it's 100% a broken brain. There's somewhere in the middle there. But the thing that people don't understand is for litigation, They had to make it out that everyone who suffered with addiction from opioids was a complete victim and that the doctor was at fault and did this to them and they had no choice in the matter. And so this broken brain model is, 
I actually think it spreads stigma because you're literally telling someone your brain is broken. There's nothing we could do for you anymore. And this doctor broke you. And here, take our product, Suboxone, for the rest of your life. Well, yeah. And that's the other thing. Like this broken brain model does lend itself for people taking Suboxone forever. And I'm not saying they should or shouldn't. Like it should be an option for people who want to or feel they need to. But I don't think this whole idea of like this doctor gave my child one Vicodin and therefore my child was a victim of that doctor and that doctor should go to prison and the pharmaceutical company should be, you know, arrested. I don't, I don't agree with that. I do think it's somewhere in the middle and we do love to hear from you guys. If you um, have an opinion about it, we would love to hear it. Please try to keep it nice or at least not too nasty. Right. Right. So that was 18. So episode 19 was I listen to a lot of these videos and podcasts about PDMP, and this is from a company, um, C-O-S-S-A-P. They're changing their name right now. It's Comprehensive Opioid Stimulant and Substance Abuse Program. I think they're changing it to substance use. It's the Bureau of, of Justice Assistance, and this is the ones who deal with the PDMP. And so I happened to listen to a certain webinar of it. So listen to these two quotes about the PDMP. These are really important. Unsolicited reports. For those of you that don't know, unsolicited reports or push notifications are generated by the PDMP based on different criteria that they have in place and sent to the uh, doctor or pharmacy based on that criteria so that those folks could be aware that one of their patients may be engaged in doctor shopping or maybe at risk of overdose or just doing something depending on the criteria that needs to be brought to the medical professional's attention. And so whenever the, the criteria is met, the PDMP will send out uh, either, uh, when I did it, we put them in the mail, but uh, it's an electronic notification to the doctor to go generate the PDMP report or retrieve the report. Right now there are 41 that are sending unsolicited reports to prescribers and dispensers. Seven are doing prescribers only. And so he's talking about obviously unsolicited reports. I think the hardest thing for me when listening to these podcasts is when people have a dry mouth, there is something about those mouth clicking noises that I cannot, I wish they would give them a lozenge. Like just, I'm sorry. They're probably nervous, but I, I think I have some kind of illness because I can't like it enrages me. I can't, when I send them to Carrie, I'm like, Carrie, I can't listen to this one. The mouth noises are too much, but so they're talking about unsolicited reports to doctors about how they prescribe. And this is the next quote from the same person. Unsolicited reports are also available to the regulatory licensing boards and law enforcement in some states. If if the PDMP, based on their criteria, identify patients that are potentially engaged in, in doctor shopping or criminal behavior, potentially, they can send that out to law enforcement for further investigation. For the regulatory agencies, the PDMP will generate reports. So those are really important because this is why your doctor is scared to prescribe. That's what that little mini episode was about, is these unsolicited reports. And if you heard what they said, it's not just the doctors they're looking at. This actually said they'll turn, if they think a patient is engaging in drug-seeking behavior or doctor shopping, they'll turn it over to law enforcement. And that's a huge problem. This goes back to your point of red flags because patients are having to go to multiple doctors, multiple pharmacies, all of their red flags because of the way they've set it up in the medication shortage. And that could potentially be turned over to law enforcement. That's terrifying to me. 
terrifying. And and before you know it, you'll have a police officer at your home because of a decision that was made between you and your doctor. Yeah, scary. And, And there's so many of these mitigation risk scores. They've all been you know, hidden somewhere. There's too many of them. I mean, if I was to research all of these mitigation risk scores in Rhode Island, I wouldn't even know where to begin because they're all so sneaky. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's scary. Then the doctor's getting a report in the mail. Yeah. They're getting it in the mail. They also could turn it into law enforcement and they also turn it into regulatory agencies like the state medical boards. And we want to know why doctors won't prescribe. Well, this is exactly why they won't prescribe. It is not your doctor's fault that the pharmacy was out of medication, but Mm -hmm. it becomes your doctor's fault if he prescribes to you. And it is not your fault that the pharmacy was out of medication, but it Mm -hmm. also becomes your fault. And if they decide, whoever's sitting behind the computer screen, often they're just law enforcement agents. If they, if they decide, oh, this person went to four pharmacies this month because your pharmacy's mm-hmm. out of medication, they could turn it over to law enforcement. And I mm-hmm. don't know what they do. Like, I've never heard of a case where they actually arrested a patient like mm-hmm. that, but they could because PDMP was a forensic tool, period. I don't care what anyone has to say about it. It was mm-hmm. created for a forensic tool. It continues to be used as a forensic tool. And the settlement funds are just bolstering it. They're giving more money to something that has absolutely zero evidence of benefit other than lowering prescribing. I hate the mm-hmm. PDMP with a passion. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm, I'm glad that's something we're working on in our organization to try to get transparency and to try to get access to it. I hate it. I hate it. Who knows? Maybe one day the PDMP will be, what's the word I'm looking for? Eliminated? What's another word for eliminated? Banned? I don't think it will. I don't think it, I mean, I don't, you know, the billion, the money that went into it, but at at least regulated. I mean, at least. If we could just remove one state, just as a a model for other states. Because they've, removed all doctor shopping now there's no way anyone's ever going to get away with any kind of doctor shopping and what happens to the people they think are doctor shopping and aren't they're going to be sent to the street so a pay- this is why paid patients when they have an acute issue are treated like garbage because here they are getting they're in the pdmp like you always say and then you know they show up with an acute issue and they're like forget it do you remember when you had a nightmare that you were stuck in the pdmp <laughs> with roger <Nope>. chow <laughs> yeah Last night, night I was dreaming about epidural steroid injections. And then I wake up and I was like, well, we we could do this. No, that's not going to work. Or we could do this. I just want to turn my mind. I know. I know. I know. Me too. Me too. I really, I do. I want to. Maybe someday. But I'm kind of an obsessive person. So it's sort of hard. See, that's why you like me. Because I'm like Dot. I'm just like your mom. I love Dot. We're going to get her on here one of these times. People yeah, love she, to see your mom. Just want, she just wanted me to vacuum some random place in the house. I was like, what? Why? What'd she say? Why? Yeah. She says, well, I like this vacuum over that <laughs> vacuum. I said, we're not, we're not in the boxes. Now she's on the box. Kit. <laughs> what about the boxes? She's saving different boxes. So I have to Aww. throw them out when she goes to bed. Oh, what is she saving them for? Like Christmas presents or something? No, because she makes pizza and calzones and she likes to put them in the box. Oh, see, that makes sense to me. It's easy to transport. We don't need any more than two boxes. That's it. That's all I need. I don't want any more shit in my house. I don't like shit. No, I hear you. That I understand too. I can't stand it. I love, nothing makes me happier than throwing things out. And when I'm like extremely stressed out, 
if I clean out a closet or something, it really calms me too. Oh, and I like organizing things. Me I can't. I, listen, I, I took the it. finish. I took the finish off of my counters. Not I your new to, ones. No, no. I had oh. to buy new granite counters. Yeah. No, I, I know scrubbing. Yeah. I hear you. Okay. Episode 21 is with Dr. Sarah. This was about the updated CDC guidelines. And in this episode, I actually, it, I didn't take a quote from something she said. I wanted to play some quotes. In this episode, we were playing quotes from what other people have said about the updated guidelines. And so I want to play two of those quotes. One of them is from Dr. David Taubin. And he was addressing the 2016 guidelines. Now, do you remember the 2016 guidelines when they came out and then later on, prop and all those people were like, well, we didn't want them to be like regulatory things. We didn't mean for them to made into law. Like we never meant that. We had nothing to do with that. Well, listen to what Dr. Taubin says. And he is a prop member, by the way. And I'm happy to say we're meeting with insurance company and big health plan folks to be able to convert guidelines for prescribers to guidelines for health systems and insurance entities, because that's the next big step. And uh, I hope uh, uh, that we make progress and I'll keep you appraised as we do move forward on this. Okay. So here's Tobin, who's, you hear how excited he is? He's like, he can hardly keep contain himself. That I they hate had, him. I hate him too. Right. Private meetings with payers to convert these guidelines into regulation. That's exactly what he said. And then they lie by, they're like, Kalani, they're like, that's a false narrative. We had nothing, nothing to do with those guidelines or anything to do with them. So this is another quote from this episode. So the CDC had a media briefing, telebriefing like they did for the 2016 guidelines. And media, I think it was the first question they asked Christopher Jones. He's not there anymore, but he was the acting director of the injury center, I think, at the time. So listen to this question. First question is from Andrew Joseph. Was that your line is open? So, so CDC has been saying basically since at least 2019 that the 2016 guidelines were misapplied. And I know in your commentary in the New England Journal, you kind of make the point that you're going to monitor for unintended effects going forward. But what does that actually look like? Like what happens if an insurer still has a cap of 90 MME or even an individual physician is, you know, cutting patients off? Like what, are, what is CDC going to do about that? Thanks for the question. I think it's a really important point, and certainly we have tried throughout the guideline to put elements in place with really the overarching principle about supporting clinical judgment in individualized patients in our care. So I want to be very clear with this conference call and with the release of the guidelines today that um, if, if policies are put in place that have one-size-fits-all rigid standards of care, that is inconsistent with the goals and okay. intent of this guideline as the clinical tools to inform decision-making. I think operationally, if we see practices like that that are occurring, first, we see as an educational opportunity. Certainly, if people are purporting to derive from the guideline, that that's the justification for taking some rigid action that applies to all patients. So we would see that as an educational opportunity. And we'll be monitoring and engaging with, as I mentioned, clinical partners and patient organizations to also raise awareness for where those circumstances may occur. And then engaging us appropriately to share accurate information about the latest science. So basically said a whole lot of nothing. This guy was like, you thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Just this, even me. this media guy, he was like, you've been saying for three years that they're misapplied, but what are you going to do about it now? And he basically said nothing. We can't do anything. 
We'll use it as an educational moment. We are so far beyond educational moments. We have people dying. We have people losing their jobs and their families and their homes because people are being cut off. We have law enforcement still applying those guidelines. I still saw one yesterday, Claudia, the press release I sent you misapplying the CDC guidelines going after a doctor. And Christopher Jones is like, oh yeah, we're going to talk to patient organizations and we're going to see what can be done. No, you're not. No, you Mm -hmm. haven't. None of you have spoken to any of us and you still didn't give any answer. What are you going to do about it? Because I'll tell you what they didn't do. They didn't have an implementation plan for the 2022 guidelines like they did in 2016. And why would that be? Because they didn't want them implemented. It's as simple Mm -hmm. as that. They didn't Uh, want them implemented. But Beth, Doctors have adopted the 50 MME that's mentioned exactly. in the 2022. And we knew that. We knew that. They take the bullet points away and they put it throughout the document. And it was, you know, they removed some 90 MME and, and they put in some 50 MME. And, you know, when I was talking to Stephanie Rubel that we spoke about this the last episode with Opioid Rapid Response Program, she was like, well, that's not the essence of what it means. And I'm like, yeah, but that's what it says. That's what it says. And that's what doctors are going to come away with. And, you know, Kalani couldn't even make up his mind about if it was more strict or less strict because mm-hmm. you have him at one point saying it's weird how people are saying it's less strict because it's actually more strict. And then a few weeks later, you have him saying to media that, oh, they re- they made it less strict because of industry funding. Like, I'm not sure which one it is, but they had no intention of changing anything because if they did, they would do something about those 38 state laws that were mm-hmm. made based on the 2016 guidelines. But who's addressing that? Us? I mean, who else? I know Kate nobody. Nicholson talks about No, nobody addresses it. Nobody. Law enforcement, all of that needs, all of those algorithms need to change. How about CMS? Did they change their risk score algorithm? Did they take out 90 and 50? I highly doubt it. I don't think they did. I don't think anyone did. How many times is 50 mentioned in the new guidelines? I'll have to go back and look, but it was more. They, it was more than it was in the previous guidelines. They removed, they just changed some 90s to some 50s. And that's basically all they did. And so some doctors, you know, took them down. Every time it enrages me, every single time, Claudia, I hear the CDC or someone else come out and say patients shouldn't be forced tapered or abandoned, I get enraged because, okay, now what? You said it. Does that make you feel better? You think people are going to stop being punished because you said they shouldn't be? What are you going to do about it? That's what I want to know. All of you experts who keep coming out and you keep saying patients need to not be abandoned, what are you doing about it? Because from where I sit, no one's doing anything about it. And I'm frustrated because people are dying and we hear from them day in and day out and day in and day out that they're losing their medication. And lately it's been elderly people more than anyone else we're hearing from. And and from our questionnaire, I think 15% were over 60, I think, or even higher than that. And it's women, it's all women, mostly women, some men, but mostly women. When I met with Senator Whitehouse, he was so clear. He said, well, what should we do? What should we do? I don't know. I, I would need- She's asking you, what right, should we do? senators ask, well, what, what, what should we do? We would need, I would need to hire a team of people. At this point, we need, we need a support system to yep. get all of our ducks yep. in a row. What our yep. main goal, and the first, there goes the words again. The first thing is we have to remove these 
risk scores or update the PDMP. Yes. And see, that all comes back to the PDMP because they couldn't do it without it. And I want to tell you something. When we hear, like in 2011, there was a round table in New York with Andrew Kaladi and Bridget Brennan, who was her, like the drug prosecutor up there. And she said in that meeting, we need definitions. She's like, I need to know if a doctor is a good doctor or a drug dealer. So I need a hard stop line. And this is what this was for. They needed thresholds to be able to make risk scores and to be able to determine if a doctor was a drug dealer or a doctor. And that's exactly what they did. We need to remove every state law based on these thresholds. We need to remove every threshold from the PDMP with risk scores. We need to remove from the state medical boards and CMS, but it's so vastly implemented, Claudia. It's like, it's not just Bamboo Health. It's state medical boards. It's law enforcement. It's OIG. It's DEA. It's it's CMS. It's every payer has their own risk score algorithms. And so for any of them to come out and say, oh, patients need, we just need to stop. Things have gotten better for pain patients. Every time media calls me now and they say, well, aren't things better since the 2022 guidelines? I'm like, no, things are worse. Things have gotten exponentially worse. And every time you call and ask me, they're worse than the time before because nobody is helping pain patients. There's five to 8 million of us. There's five to 8 million patients on daily opioids for pain. And I don't see a dollar going to helping these people. Nobody Mm -hmm. wants to touch it. Nobody knows what to do. And we're not going to stop until something is done because I'm so tired of seeing people suffer and die for no reason. There is no reason to take a stable patient off of opioids. There's no reason. And every single time the law enforcement goes after another doctor, you know, Claudia, when I sent you these press releases today, I was like, they don't even mention the patients anymore. They used to at least pretend and say, oh, if these patients who suffer with addiction, blah, blah, blah. But they don't even, they don't even mention the patients anymore. They don't care. And, uh, you know, we, we mentioned this in some of our podcasts, but we've heard from several doctors now, two are incarcerated right now. But when they went after them, these strike forces that claim to have people making sure patients have continuity of care. Oh, they said to Dr. Edelglass, he said, what's going to happen to my patients? And the the agent said to him, your addicts will be just fine. And how many of them have died? And the same thing with Dr. Bauer, the prosecutor threatened to revoke his bail because he was trying to find uh, continuity of care for his patients. So don't Mm -hmm. lie and tell people that that's what you're doing. You're not. And Ron Chapman said it the best. They can't have a program like ORRP that really works because it, go, it goes against everything they stand for. They want these patients to not take opioids, period. That's it. That's what they want. That's the only goal. We don't want you to have access yep. to any pain medication. And, yep. and it's continued to inch towards being an opioid-free country. Other than for opioid use disorder. And people will say, no, that's not true. That's not true. Well, everyone needs to fight. And this is the thing. You said it yesterday, I think in the live, we can't call all of your reps for you. We cannot be the only ones calling. Call your local reps. Call your senators. You have to follow through with complaints. If you were cut off of your medication, file a complaint. File a complaint with your insurance company, with your state medical board, with whoever's over your doctor, if there is someone over him. We need every pain patient who reaches out to us to follow through filing a complaint because that's the because you said it yesterday. They're like, well, we don't hear from constituents that it's happening. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. really important. Okay, so episode 22 was Dr. Uh, Josh Bloom. He was a fun guest. It was I fun having Josh. him on. 
Yeah, yeah, me too. We turned it into two episodes. The first one was about gabapentin. Claudia, those are your most listened to uh, TikToks, aren't they? About gabapentin. Millions of views. Millions. Yeah, we had, we've had we had a lot of people forced off of opioids who were stable before put on gabapentin, and now they're being forced off gabapentin because the DEA seems to be obsessed with gabapentin and Lyrica now. From people who use drugs, and they're like, yeah, no. Like, the thing that I know about gabapentin is it has does help some people with withdrawal. So if mm-hmm. they've been cut off of something else, they say it helps them not have too much like withdrawal symptoms but then what helps him with the gabapentin withdrawal i know but here's the thing claudia i don't care if people like gabapentin i don't care i mean what are you gonna make sugar illegal next and like what what sniffing glue or whatever the heck that is like you're gonna make everything illegal because someone likes it is that is that a such thing i know what is it i don't even know what it is i just huffing or whatever we learned so much about drugs that I still I ask care. questions. I, I still have to ask questions about the drugs. I don't care. Like, and if you ever notice a pain patient when they're like, the drugs, uh, the opioids work for me and it never makes me feel euphoric. We're forced to have to say that because God forbid you feel good. That's a problem yeah. to this well, I've, country. Listen, I, I've been on a dilated pump many times and I was like, oh, oh, oh. I know. I felt great. But it's also because it helps pain. But don't remember. I mean, it does. Yeah, but not all of a sudden it doesn't help anything. No, they it say, doesn't. But... It doesn't hate pain. You just like to be euphoric. You like to be high, you junkie. That's what they call us all the time, junkies. Okay, so this is the first quote from Josh. Yeah, the result is tens of millions of pain patients who have been involuntarily tapered. And of course now there's such pressure on doctors and hospitals not to prescribe opioids because they're getting on a DEA list and being prosecuted. If, if the DEA deems that they're writing too many prescriptions or too high a volume, as if the DEA should be deciding what the right number of prescriptions and doses, you, you've got the DEA and the CDC, maybe the two worst agencies to be inserted between the patient and the doctor. And the results have been an absolute disaster. Not just for pain patients, but it's irrefutable evidence now that as pain. So we, I love Josh. He's funny. He's smart. He stands up for what's right. And I have another quote from this episode. Ironically, the CDC mentions gabapentin 15 times in the updated CDC guidelines. Why do you think uh, the CDC is pushing gabapentin as an alternative to FDA approved opioids for pain? To make it seem like there are legitimate Mm -hmm. alternatives Mm -hmm. for opioids for pain, which of course there are not. So if if you can glom on to antidepressants or uh, Neurontin or even worse, Tylenol, it's here. Mm -hmm. These things are fine. Mm -hmm. Don't take the opioids, they're bad. So it's just ass covering as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. Plus I don't don't really blame the doctors because now they're all terrified to write script for a one tramadol and they got to get you out of the office so they're going to give you a prescription here try this i hear it works right take you know take tylenol so um all this pressure on opioid prescribing is directly responsible for the pushing of the antidepressants and the gabapentinoids normally 
there is no way in the world those drugs would be pushed. Yeah, I thought that was really, I try not to get too many clips with your voice for here because I know you hate it so much <laughs> you'll be listening to it. But that was a great soundbite from Josh. And, it, and it's a great explanation about why this is happening. Well, you know, like, oh, yeah, gabapentin helps my pain. But what kind of pain are we talking That's about? That's right. It helps. From what I've heard, it does help neuropathic pain. Um, neuropathic nerve pain, meaning nerve pins pain. and needles nerve in your pain. feet. Like, I know uh, Betty Lou is on it for she had a stroke. And it mm -hmm. does seem to help her with that, like, tingling numbness from her side with the stroke. Um, but it also knocks her out. Like she's like, she's so tired from it. But the, but the, this is what happened though, Claudia. They mentioned it all the Nerve, those nerve yeah. pain, not I broke my leg. No, Here's some gabapentin. correct. Well, Claudia, before I had my knee surgery, they gave me one gabapentin in pre-op. I'm like, what am I, why are you giving this to me? Like, yeah, now it's given instead of opioids like it's an opioid substitute which the doctors felt more comfortable prescribing it but now you know it is controlled lyrica is schedule five gabapentin is controlled in some states it's listed in the pdmp i do know lyrica's gab i think lyrica is schedule five everywhere which would mean it would be in the pdmp i guess but yeah gabapentin is also uh, listed in some places so now they're saying gabapentin is part of a lot of overdoses and so if you're on an opioid and a gabapentin then you're high risk so now all of a sudden your doctor you know doctors lowered people's opioids gave them gabapentin and now it's a combination and now the doctor's gonna be what are they going to call it another holy trinity or whatever the heck they call it and then you're going to hear about doctors being arrested for prescribing yes. gabapentin yes. and then the doc and then that doctor's going yeah. to surrender their license and then the that doctor's going to fork over three hundred thousand dollars and then it goes on and those and patients on. are going to be abandoned and no one's going to take them because they don't want to they don't want to be targeted next by the DEA. And so those two or 300 patients are going to go abandoned and find us and, and ask us what they can do. And um, if you're in this position, please fill out this questionnaire on our website. We cannot find you doctors right now, but you can join the doctor patient forum page. We have a separate page also for your state. So if you're in New York, it would be New York doctor patient forum. Let us know what's going on or how you're doing. And the best thing we know to say for now until you find a doctor is if Kratom is legal in your state, we have information on our website under harm reduction. If you have any questions, let us know. No, we don't get any money for Kratom. We don't take money from anybody, but we have heard from a lot of patients that it has helped their pain and anxiety and some withdrawal. Now, this is a nightmare what's happening and it's a crisis and they need to stop what they're doing. I can't express this enough. That you guys need to stop what you're doing and help us. For the mm -hmm. fact that this is left to pain patients to figure out is so atrocious and disgusting. And all of that money, all of that everything, if you think about it, there's one to two million people with OUD in this country. Everyone stopped everything to help, as they should. People need help. There's five to eight million on daily opioids and no one is doing anything. You're just like, go to do. I don't know. Right. I don't know what to do. It'll work out. Like it's not working out and it's not getting better. So figure something out with all those research dollars that you guys get and help Terrible. help. So this is the next episode with Josh was episode 23 and it was about Tylenol. And this quote also, this haunts me, Claudia. We hear from them daily. Like it's either suicide or the street. It's either suicide or the street. But how many patients are you actually hearing from discussing suicide? Twitter comments after our articles, and sometimes they're hundreds, emails directly to me and emails to our organization, which go indirectly to me. I would say I've looked at 
dozens of people who were either asking for advice about committing suicide or telling me they're going to. Yeah. So that was scary for me to hear that. Josh said that people are, cause he's a, he's a, what is he? A chemical, what is he called? A chemical. What is his title? Well, he's a chemist, right? I know, but I forget what it, uh, yeah. A chem, I forget what he was. Why, does Josh know how people can effectively commit suicide? Well, yeah, because he knows pharmacology. That's what oh, he does. Wow. And so he I said know. people people message him. Where were you while we were recording with him? <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at Josh's, uh, let me take a look at. Yeah, people uh, reach out to him to ask him how to commit suicide. And obviously yeah. he doesn't tell them, but he said, remember the story he told us, Claudia, there was one lady who said she told him her whole story and said she might commit suicide. And so he's gonna, if, if sadly she ever does that, she wants him to tell her story. And this is atrocious. I'm grateful that Dr. Kertes is, is studying suicides. I'm incredibly mm-hmm. grateful for that. But in addition, I also wish that someone would try to prevent them because right now seems like we're the only ones trying to prevent every day. They're like, oh, mental health crisis, suicide. Well, why do you think suicides are going up? Why do you think that you have people in unrelenting pain who used to have a life and now are stuck in bed all because of a false narrative. So you guys could line your pockets and you want to know why people are committing suicide. Let people have their pain treated, Claudia. They need to let people have their pain treated. Sorry, go ahead. Josh Bloom, Director of Chemical and Pharmaceutical Science, earned his PhD in Organic Chemistry. That's it, Organic Chemistry. That's that's what I couldn't remember what it was called. So if anybody knows how to do it, it's Josh. Yeah, and I, I was shocked when he said that people reached out to him to ask him how. It just broke my heart because people are desperate. They're desperate. It's terrible. Okay, so episode 24 was with Beth Steckler. She's, uh, I think her Twitter handle is pur- Purple Mama Bear or Mama, something like that. She doesn't is not a pain patient. Her husband had, do you remember the name of the illness? It's something with pancreas, but it's, I, I forget the name of the disease. Her husband had it and both of her children have it. And her children have been treated so horrifically in the healthcare system. And I mean, her daughter had like a Whipple procedure. She had all these organs removed and what they have done to her and Beth, and accused Beth of having Munchausen's and accused the daughter of having Munchausen's is terrible. So this first clip is from a video from Beth's daughter. She was recording a nurse in the hospital who refused to give her her regular medication while she was there. I'm telling you that you lied to me and so you don't want to go there with me. You are refusing me my own medication. You know, I'm going by what safe parameters I feel and what my doctor has talked to me about. Your doctor, or your, what your doctor has talked to me about. Okay, if their, if their opinion, if Susan's opinion, Alicia's opinion, did not matter what they said, why go to them in the first place? I showed you- You the- told me to, to go ask. But if, that, but, if, but if you knew that, if you didn't feel like it mattered anyways, why would you go to them? Because they both Are you gonna take that? they both said exactly what I said they would say. No, Alicia you said, said you work with you the last and you said Susan only gave that to pacify me. But now you, when I called you out on your lie, you said that I won't do this because you have no answer for your lie. No, I don't need to lie. I don't you, feel comfortable. You just said you didn't. You just. I didn't feel comfortable giving it to you because I don't know the medicine. Then tell someone to take it over. So, so you know what? So I went above and talked to the doctor and to the pharmacist. The doctor does not know me either. So, 
So you're saying you didn't say pacify, that she tried to pass? Yep. Oh. Poor kid. So this girl, she was like 20, I think, when that was last year, has been tortured in the healthcare system. And Beth has been an amazing advocate to her. She had to move out of state to get better care. And Beth has said she's doing amazingly well. Elle has said that she will come on and let us interview her to hear firsthand how things are for her. But I know that's hard to listen to. That, that nurse was so concerned about her own feelings. I don't feel mm -hmm. comfortable. I don't care what you feel. Then yeah. find somebody else. Now this girl has had her pancreas removed and her everything taken out. And so she has a really difficult form of diabetes. And they accuse her of tanking her own sugar on purpose because she likes to be in the hospital. They say they wouldn't let Beth in and see her. It was like medical kidnapping, almost like take care of Maya. That mm. is very Munch similar. About Munch Munchausen by proxy. It's not uncommon. And Beth said it's not uncommon with that illness for the parents to be accused of Munchausen's. It's heartbreaking. This next quote is from Beth, so we could hear from her point of view about it. What we are doing is costing not only our children, we're also causing more damage and causing more cost to the system. Because what happens, and, and it speaks to when I asked the question to the NIH, and there was applause all over, and families coming up to me and saying, you know, we experienced that I have this rare disease and pain and I'm not able to access anything and I'm left suffering. And what my children experienced, I heard it from other people, is this vicious cycle where you're dismissed, you're told you're lying, you're told it's psychological. And then when something, you know, is visibly wrong, there's no apology. Right. There's no healing and saying, I'm sorry. Um, it's just denial fix it denial in this vicious cycle and my son and my daughter my son still refuses to go to the hospital or clinic so we're in the situation that I worry about his health but he's been so traumatized and, and that's what my daughter went through too it was medical trauma and I sat down with the hospital and begged I begged to say can we have a trauma-informed plan let's be on the same page they have refused to talk to us or her therapist to put a plan in place. They just term it, like you said, as drug seeking, as borderline, as all these things that will lead to a vicious cycle. And yeah. So how about I was reading yesterday about painkiller. They're already talking about season two. They started every episode with us. Uh, I think it's a, a parent talking about losing a child, which is tragic. But how about this be the episode? How about this be season two? How about you start every episode with a pain patient or a mother having to watch their child suffer because of your false narrative? Because everything that you're doing, painkiller, all of this, all this is going to do is make more people suffer like Beth and her daughter. Mm -hmm. It's atrocious. It's absolutely atrocious and unnecessary. So sad. And the nurses, you know, they're so overworked. You know, some of these nurses are getting yeah. 10, yeah. 12 patients. And and, yeah. and now they have to deal with somebody who needs a lot of pain medication. Yeah. And they're afraid because everybody's yes. afraid. Yeah. And now we've got an overworked, underpaid nurse. Yeah. 
who doesn't know what yep. to do. That's right. But it's, I don't know. But remember that risk score we saw? They even had one that company was doing with nurses in the hospital to try to get them to lower the amount of opioids they are giving to patients in the hospital. Like that's all that matters. Nobody cares about anything else. It's, It's just all that matters. All right. So the next episode was episode 25 with pharmacist Matt. We were addressing red flags. Let's hear what he has to say. I think all red flags need to be uh, reviewed. I really do. I think it needs to be taken away and started from scratch because using all of these red flags from the 90s is not okay. It's just not okay. Well, from the pharmacist's perspective, those red flags are looking for one type of thing because they all came out of the pill mill doctor flagrant drug diversion, right? Yeah. But- it gets difficult from the pharmacist's perspective because in 2023, we have a reduced number of providers. That's right. We have a different climate for how, or at least a climate shift right. in how they want to treat pain. And and now you have opiate litigation that's going to change it even further. Yeah. I guarantee you the big boxes are going to have hard stop documentation checklists after this latest opiate settlement. Yeah. And that's a problem. That's something that we're working on, right, Claudia? We, we need to get them to reassess the red flags because, they, they, you know, the biggest red flags, they're causing us to do the things that they're saying will flag us. And that needs to change. It just needs to change. Okay, so episode 26 was OPAL. OPAL is that study that recently came out the end of June, I believe, that said they they tested opioids to placebo for acute low back pain, and they determined in all their infinite wisdom that opioids don't work for low back pain. And we have a whole episode on it, obviously, where we, we break down the entire study, but this is a bit of a longer clip, but this is a, a clip from a news program when Opal came out explaining it. Here is a, a two-minute interview in Australia with a pain doctor there, and the lead researcher, Christine Lynn. Giles Cooper was a fit and busy 30-year-old until the pandemic saw him sleeping more than moving. So I woke up one morning after quite a long period of um, sitting down and working and really struggled to get out of bed. His back pain took him to a GP who prescribed him opioids. I was in quite a negative spiral of taking some painkillers, getting some relief, um, doing a little bit of activity, um, the back becoming triggered. New research from the University of Sydney shows why people like Giles may struggle to feel better. The researchers studied almost 350 people with sudden neck or back pain. At six weeks, those given opioids had no better pain relief than those who were given a placebo. After 12 months, pain outcomes were slightly better in the placebo group. What we're saying is, <laughs> based on the findings of our study, listen to this shouldn't be used at all because they don't give any short-term benefits in pain relief and they may lead to long-term harm. Opioids carry risks of addiction and the study found people given painkillers had a higher risk of misuse in the long term. But some pain specialists say current practices shouldn't change because the study didn't use treatments that doctors typically prescribe. The drug that they've chosen to use is Targan, which is an oxycodone naloxone combination, which is unapproved for use in acute pain and is actually not recommended by the Faculty of Pain Medicine for use in acute pain. For Giles, everything changed when he found a physiotherapist who used education and physical therapy to manage his pain. A lot of my pain was coming from my brain creating it as opposed to the actual injury. 
He's been off painkillers for six months and he's back playing sport. So there we go. Where's Giles today? (laughs) I know, I know, I know. But that doctor there, I found him and I'm following him on on Twitter now because he was like, wait a second, this shouldn't be used to change guidelines. You used a drug that no one would ever use. It's not even approved for and against our own guidelines. But it doesn't matter. They're still still pushing it out. Okay, so episode 27 is a tough one. That was with Jay Joshi. As we know, Dr. Joshi was in prison for about 11 months after an undercover DEA agent basically set him up. And so here's a few quotes from Jay. After the DEA raid, two patients of mine died. One of them directly lost her life due to a suicide following a DEA agent pointing an AK-47 to her head. (gasps) What? What do you mean? So this is a patient and I write about her in my book. She was coming to my clinic that day for telepsychiatry. She was not even taking opioids. She actually was taking a benzodiazepine and is taking Suboxone to wean herself off of the benzodiazepine and her previous heroin use months before. And she had agreed to start telepsychiatry. I am more than comfortable continuing your medications and working on a tapering schedule as you feel appropriate, but you also should go through some counseling. And she said, I can't find a counselor. So I arranged a telepsychiatrist and she would come and speak with that telepsychiatrist at my office. Well, that was the day of the raid. And she started complaining to the DEA agent saying, what you're doing is wrong. You got the wrong physician. Please stop this. The DEA agent yelled at her told her to keep quiet, you know, obviously used a lot more vulgar language than that. And um, she wouldn't stop. So they eventually told her to lie down and they pointed a gun at her. They told her to lie down and then they pointed a gun to her head while she was lying down. Yeah. And then she committed suicide later on because she lost her medication or just from the trauma? That- uh, I, honestly, I'm not qualified to say one or the other, but both events are quite, as you can imagine, uh, staggering in the mind of somebody who is going through therapy, trying to make positive changes in her life, just to see the federal government come in and just behave in just the most atrocious of manners. I, I will say this, two days after the raid, she came back to the clinic, scared, petrified, and she and I just basically sat together for about 20 minutes, and she was crying, she was inconsolable, and it was clear that what that DEA agent did to her affected her. I, I can't say for sure whether that was a triggering event, but I would say that that, in conjunction with the abrupt discontinuation of the medications together, led to what had happened. And, you know, it's a shame that the DEA is not willing to take accountability for that. Yeah, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. But we need to get this out there, Claudia, because everyone thinks it's still like, oh, someone sprains their ankle and they get 600 Vicodin and that doctor should go to prison. But that's not actually what's happening. We have two more clips. The last episode 29 was our last episode we posted. That was with Marissa Kors about sickle cell disease and Brittany Hightower. So this is also really difficult, but I'm going to end on a high note after this one this is there is there's a high note yeah it's the recording with Carl Hart about what's coming with us so that we can bring it to where I I'm gonna be able to sleep tonight without sobbing all night long this is a recording of Brittany Hightower Brittany Hightower recorded her ER visit live she was terribly mistreated in the healthcare system this is when she was in the emergency room and the hospital didn't want to help her and they actually called the police on her so this is a bit of a longer clip also but I it's important to listen to it 
eye pain and what's wrong with me and you're totally ignoring me. this is a hospital no you are putting my life in danger by sending me home so dr sad again i don't care can i be consulted it doesn't matter you're sending me home and that's a danger to me that is a danger. I would not have come if I didn't believe I was sick. You can see it in my blood record that I am in a crisis. So how in the world would a hematologist and blood doctor suggest that being at a six is good? That doesn't make any sense to me. Well, we're going and to even die. if it's not blood, like you're this, you're not even looking at pain control. I'm not gonna come here if I had payments at home. Why would I come here if that was working? If that was working, I wouldn't have came in the first place. And you think because you gave me a measly milligram when I take eight at home, what what do you think that's going to do? Any other time, I would get admitted for pain control, and they would do what they had to do. And when I was comfortable, I would leave. I am not comfortable right now. I'm still in the same amount of pain when I got here. And you're stressing me out even more, which is just going to spike it. And what you have, your solution is to discharge me and say, I can go somewhere else if I don't like it. That's not how you treat people. I didn't say that. Yes, you did. You said it just now. We're discharging you. So that means you're able to go wherever. Why would I go somewhere else if I'm already here now? And you're just choosing not to treat me. That doesn't make sense. None of you can say that makes any sense. We're going to let you calm down, okay? Hmm. I don't need to calm down. I need someone to help me. You're not sending me home with my blood at a six. And I want to know who this hematologist is that would even say something like that. So I'm going to put to the very last part here. Let's see. And there was some discussion that she didn't want to have a blood transfusion. I don't know enough about sickle cell. Yeah, I don't know much. I don't know much about it. And because I've seen that comment on TikTok, but if she doesn't want a blood transfusion, that should be her prerogative. It definitely should. But apparently they're using that as a well, she only wants the pain medication. She and if she wanted the help, she would take the blood transfusion. Why is this woman begging for pain medication? No, the and hospital? then and then they call the police. So here's yeah. this part. So that was the police. They called on her. They came in and they said, I'm going to level with you. We have to get that thing out of your chest. They were talking about her port. Her port yeah. And she died, by the way. She's not alive anymore. And it was not 
right after that. I think it was within the same calendar year, but Mm. I don't know the ins and outs. I've heard a lot of people blame Brittany and say that she didn't treat them well. Well, let me tell you something. When you go through unrelenting pain day in and day out and day in and day Mm. out, how about having some compassion and being like, yeah, I could understand why she was angry and scared and crying. There's no compassion when you're sick. There's nothing. They look at you like like a criminal or worse than a criminal. And they they call the police on her and they she had to leave. We're going to have Marissa back on again to talk about Brittany's case. But uh, that was a rough, that Terrible. was a rough one. That mm-hmm. was a rough case. I mean, that was rough. And then if you want, we have in the show notes of Marissa's episode, all of Britney's TikToks. If you want to go and look, the TikTok name is Escaping Sickle Cell Hell. That's that's Marissa's TikTok name. So that was the last episode we did. I want to go back, like I said, and end on a good note. Text. I know because we're cooler than you and we have Carl Hart in our phone and our contacts. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. He asked us to help him with a project. So I'm going to end it by listening to this three minute clip with Carl Hart. So uh, if you folks are watching this now, we humbly thank you for your support. And joining us right now is Dr. Carl Hart, uh, my colleague Bev. And we're just so thrilled that Carl has invited us to uh, participate in some, me- you know, writing of a, a medical you piece. You so co-edit. You yes, yeah, so this is really a thrill for us. You know, Carl, oftentimes we're not acknowledged for any of the work that we do because we don't have a JD or an ESQ or an MD or a PhD after our name. And you know what? I mean, let's face it, activists, we make the world go round and round. We're like truck drivers here. We're putting in all the time and we don't get shit. We don't get recognized and we don't do it for recognition, but everybody gets compensated. And, you know, I ask, can we record you? Because that Patreon page, Bev, maintains it 24 7 so to our patrons look at us bitches yes that's right and if my back wasn't out i'd be getting us doing this doing this but all you're getting today is this so i want to thank you carl for the invite i mean bev bev spends hundreds if not thousands of hours researching i'm only the face and bev and, and all these amazing researchers they deserve to be recognized and maybe here's a thought compensated i know I compensated for shit no Doing yeah nothing we, we applied for so many grants and we got denied 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 every single grant we applied for we got all denied of all of them carl not a zip not one well, I'm penny. hoping, I really am hoping that with this edition, this journal edition that yeah. we're going to do, that people will see that you all are serious academics too, scholars. And uh, that's what this, be great. this is really about. You all have some fidelity to the data. Uh, and that's all that really matters, that you have fidelity yeah. to the data. The people who are out here trying to ban uh, uh, certain pain meds, uh, they don't have fidelity to the data. And so what they're doing is actually violating the principles of science. And all we're trying to do is remind them to stick with the principles of science. That's it. It's yeah. a great well, way to put it. Thankful. Yeah, really, uh, we're thankful for the support. And we're going to do our best to show up with the knowledge that we've earned. That was our little clip with Carl Hart. I wanted to end on something happier. I like that, I like like, that. you have a fidelity, fidelity to yeah. the data. What a year it's been. After listening to all of our podcasts that we covered the past 12 months, I feel like I've been, a, I feel like my mind 
has been abused. I know you feel the same way. It really is. It sucks the life out of us. And and this is why we tell you folks, you got to get involved. Support our Patreon page. Yeah. Please donate. I need money to hire a lobbyist. No way around this. I can't find my yeah. way around Capitol Hill without a lobbyist. We are looking forward to a bright next, you know, we're going to be recording all of our podcasts. We haven't stopped recording. Bev is one person. There's only so much she can do. And we're looking forward to working with Carl Hart. We're looking forward to working with this new lobbying firm. We're looking forward to getting a DEA oversight hearing and we need money to do all of this. And we hate asking for money, but donate. If you're a doctor, you're still working. We need money. We need a national media campaign running it on all mainstream media. We need class action lawsuits against the CDC, the DEA, against everybody. You know, the anti-opioid wackos, they can be sued individually. So we need money. Donate. We're going to keep fighting for you. You folks keep fighting and you meet us back here on the Dr. Patient Forum podcast. And we thank you for your support. Yes, thank you. The link to our Patreon page is p-a-t-r-e-o-n, patreon.com slash the doctor patient forum. If you haven't been over there, I hope you will consider checking it out. We have three different tiers, $5, $15, $30. Our highest tier, we include four coaching calls that you get with it. We have a lot of extra video podcasts and after the show podcasts. It's just been a lot of fun being able to build that little community over there. So I hope to see you over there. Thank you once again for listening to our podcast. If you're enjoying our podcast, please follow us on Spotify, leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and share with anyone that you think might benefit from this information. Just a quick disclaimer, the information contained in this podcast should not be considered medical or legal advice.